So, here we go. So let's start off with just like Buddhism in the big picture. So Buddhism in the big picture is this. It can be looked at in four different ways. It can be a lifestyle. And you have cotton shirts, go see the Dalai Lama, vegetarian, you know. It can be a nice lifestyle. It simplifies your life, you, you, you downsize. Uh, Buddhism can be a therapy, which it was in the beginning. Because Buddhism in the beginning was just to end suffering. The Buddha only talked about two things in all the years he spoke. He talked about why humans suffer, and he talked about how to end that suffering. So it can be a therapy. Buddhism is a cool philosophy. There's like hundreds of books written about what Buddhism means. And everybody has their own little idea or take on the subject. And then Buddhism can be religion, which it is for me. And so it's religion that allows me uh, to live in the world with the idea that one day I'll have to die and I'll have to go someplace. And Buddhism says, well, you have plenty of places to go. And if you have good karma, you'll go to good places. And if you have bad karma, well, you'll suffer for a while. So, so we can look at Buddhism in a variety of ways. Some people try to integrate Buddhism into their own religion, whether it be Christian, Jewish, or Muslim. And they think, well, maybe if I add some Buddhist stuff to it, it'll make my religion better. But it really doesn't. It's, it really doesn't. Every religion works just fine. And every religion has a beginning and an end and things you need to do in between those two things. And Buddhism does too. So Christianity works really good for Christians. And Buddhism works really good for Buddhists. And Judaism works really good for Jews. And it's just fine. And we all have some place to go after we die. Though, sometimes it can be a real effort to describe where we're going to go. So uh, two weeks ago, I was at Bishop Montgomery High School, and we had a conference on death and dying. And so the students came in, and we talked about where we go when we die and how to get there. And we had uh, a rabbi and an, and an imam and a Hindu and a Buddhist and a Catholic. And we all have different places to go, and we all described it so differently as well. And it was just fascinating. Um, the Jewish religion doesn't put a lot of effort into describing afterlife. They are more focused on life. The Hindu religion has a variety of lifetimes um, where you are doing certain lessons and passing, and then eventually working your way into the greater soul, the big soul. It's a giant soul. And each one of us has a little spark if you're a Hindu. Um, the Catholic, yeah, he a lot of places to go. There's grace, there's forgiveness. Really nice. None of those things in Buddhism. Uh, in Buddhism, we often wonder who goes. You know, one of our big issues is, is who are we? And, and we've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about it and writing about it and come to the conclusion that we're probably nobody in particular. We're simply a process that is conditional and manifests moment by moment. So, having said all of that, the Buddha had a real chore. When he was Siddhartha, before he was the Buddha, he came to understand that this human life of ours is ultimately unsatisfactory. Now, this is like the first part. Remember I said Buddhism only talks about two things? The first part is why our life is unsatisfactory. And in certain countries, like America, 
it requires a lot of effort to explain why life sucks. Because if you look at life, if you've ever been to Disneyland, you know it's wonderful. Okay, but then you start getting old, and then you see things that you don't want to see, like wrinkles, you feel arthritis, you, you can't remember your friend's name, you just go, wow. And then you can't even walk very good. It feels like you're walking on pebbles all the time. And then your teeth fall out, and then you have to buy trifocals, because bifocals and single vision doesn't work anymore. And then you can't hear anything, because the eardrum doesn't work. And then you die. Whoa. And each one of us were born to get old, to get sick, and to die. Not all of us will get old, but we will all get sick, and we will all die. So we spend a lot of time talking about how terrible life can be. But we also say it's not always terrible, that there are good parts of life that are joyous and give us hope for the future. And, and so we have relationships, we have careers, we have cars, we have all sorts of things that you go, wow, it really is worth working 50 hours a week to have that car, you know. Then you start to wake up and you start to see that it's, it's a difficult path that we follow as humans. Number one, we're the only animal on this planet that knows it's going to die and can't do anything about it. Whoa, you would think we, we would keep that from ourselves. And for the most part, we do. I have a friend named Mary. She works in a hospice. One day, she lost five patients, which isn't unusual. It's a hospice. But she said the miracle of that day was not one of the five thought today was the day. Isn't that interesting? You know, um, so we look at our life and we see a, a long future. Even if you're 80, you still see a future, you know, which just is magical and rather deluded. But that's what nature did for us. It allowed us to look at the world in a special way, a human way. So the Buddha said, I have discovered four things in his first talk. The first thing I've discovered that ultimately life is unsatisfactory. And it's unsatisfactory because, second truth, we have desire and craving and thirst. And no matter how hard we try to satisfy our desire and craving, we always fail because we're born with original ignorance. We don't see the world the way it really is. And we try to hold on to the good and we try to push away the bad and we never can do that. So the reason we suffer so much is because we can't come to a place of acceptance with the way things are. We always think it could be better, if only. And that if only gets in our way every day, in every way. Third truth, the answer, he discovered it. The answer is nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering while we're alive. It's the end of karma, which is really an amazing concept. And it's also the end of all future rebirths. We'll never have to be reborn again. At one point in the t teachings of the Buddha, he said, I teach the path to immortality. I teach the path of how not to be reborn. See, that's the problem, is we keep getting born. 
Now you'll be born one more time as a Christian. You'll be reborn into heaven, which will be a great time for you, and it'll be eternal, and you'll never have to worry about being reborn again. But as a Buddhist or even a Hindu, if you believe in reincarnation or rebirth, you would say, you know, the reason I suffer so much is because I'm born. And that starts the whole cycle over again, time and time again. So if I could figure out how to exist without being born, I'd never have to suffer. So you look at this world and you say, in this world, is there anything that wasn't created? Can you name one thing that wasn't created in this world that we live on? And you can't. Everything had a beginning. And because everything had a beginning, it has to have an end. So nirvana has no beginning and nirvana has no end. And that's why we're striving and struggling to ultimately achieve, wake up, realize our nirvana. So far, so good? He said the path, the prescription to nirvana is the noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Did you read that in the book? It's on Google, too. And it's, it's really cool because it's sort of a concise way of looking at the entire path of Buddhism. And you can break it down into three aspects, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. So in the first category of personal discipline, you find three path factors, right speech, right action, right livelihood. So the Buddha said there are four kinds of speech we should try to avoid, harsh, malicious, false, and gossip or idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech can increase our suffering dramatically and also the suffering of the people around us. So in Christianity, there's something like that too, about the speech, not to lie, things like that. Then right action, three categories of right action, not killing, not stealing, no sexual misconduct. So the first part is, I think, is just amazing, not to kill. How difficult is it not to kill? It is so difficult because we're all sort of like programmed to kill all the time. So you get a mosquito, 3 o'clock in the morning, you're not going to catch it. You're not going to let it suck your blood. You're going to kill it and roll over and go back to sleep without a second thought. You know, and granted, um, mosquitoes are something that maybe should be killed, but still, <laughs> somehow they made it to Earth. All this life we have on our planet right now somehow made it. And if you think about your own life, where were you before you were born? How long did it take you to get here? It took you literally forever to get here, you know? And now you're here only a few years, and then you got to leave again forever, you know? So how special is life? It is the most special thing. And yet when you look at the way people treat life, it just makes you want to be sad because you see people killing each other for no good reason. Is there ever a good reason to kill somebody? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe sometimes we have to, you know. But other times, maybe we could avoid it. And, and so you look at this life thing and you say, okay, how do I start not killing? And I would recommend that you start really big. You say to yourself, tomorrow, when you get up, today I'm not going to kill any human beings. And, and you walk out the door with confidence and you can go through the whole day without taking anybody out. <laughs> then you, you add lions and tigers and bears and, of course, say, oh my... And see if you can make it through the whole day without killing them as well. And then you do it and you say, this is pretty good. 
And then the hard part is the mosquitoes and the flies and the ants. You know? And some cockroaches too. Those are the hard ones not to kill because they invade our territory. They make us feel uncomfortable. They shouldn't be there because we're there. This is our space. Now, I'm never quite sure who gave us our space, but we like to think of it as being our space. And if things are in the wrong place, we get upset. Dirt. You know what I mean about dirt? What is dirt? It is matter out of place. That's it. So we get the vacuum cleaner or the broom and sweep up the dirt and put it where it's supposed to go, outside. You know? But in the old days, they had dirt floors. Can you imagine taking care of that? Wow. So this idea of this is my space creates a lot of problem because we have now gone into writing lines on the planet. So we have California and Arizona and New Mexico, and we know right where the lines are because we look at the map, but if you go out to space and look at the Earth, there's not even one line anyplace. And you go, wow, we made this whole thing up. So now we have to protect our space from them. And they're the ones that live in the other space. And so we have this whole victim-victor kind of thing going in on our head. And we have war. So will we ever not have war? Have we ever not had war? No, we've always had war. Because people always needed to defend where or who they thought they were. So humans, even though we are the smartest animal on the earth, can also be pretty dumb as well when it comes to certain things. So how about not taking stuff that's not given? The problem with America is we have receipts. And every time you buy something, they give you a receipt, and now you think you own it. But if somebody wants it more than you do, stealing, do you really own it? Or if you can't find it, do you really own it? Or if it breaks, or if the new model comes out, what do you really own? I thought about this the other day as I looked in the mirror and I thought to myself, if I owned me, I wouldn't look like this. But <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but it doesn't work that way. We can't even own ourselves, let alone a car or an iPad. You know, we just sort of like have this delusion of ownership and then somebody takes it from us and it makes us really angry because we thought we owned it even though we were simply using it until somebody wanted it more. So the idea of not taking stuff in Buddhism is because it's a great and grand delusion, this ownership thing, and it makes people feel uncomfortable if you take their stuff. So we try not to take stuff that's not given, which can be pretty problematic. Say you're at Denny's and you want to use the ketchup and it's on the table and it's assumed that you'll use it, but if you're a Buddhist practicing, you'll ask permission to use it because it wasn't offered. So now the waitress looks at you like you're insane. You know? And she says, of course you can use the ketchup. It's fine. Sexual misconduct. This is really a good one because everybody likes to have sex. And, and we can't all have sex because it makes other people feel uncomfortable if you're having sex and they're not. So we have houses and motels. But what did the Buddha say about having sex? He said, it's important to have sex because we need people. We've done really well. We have seven billion. 
But there are some things you shouldn't do because you live with other people. So you shouldn't have sex with people who are married. You shouldn't have sex with people who are engaged. You shouldn't have sex with children. And you shouldn't have sex with people against the will. Four things, that's what the Buddha said. You would think Buddhists could live by those four things? No. They, I don't know what's wrong with humans. They always want what they can't have, you know? So you, you read the, the latest celebrity news and somebody's married going out with this person or that person and somebody's a case and da, da, da. Why do we have all those rules? Because we live in community and we need to honor the family. The family is the building block of any community. And so three of those have to do with family. And Siddhartha, pre-Buddha, was a family man. He had a wife, he had a child. So he understood how important family was and I think that's why those things are there. And then not having sex against, with people against their will. Really good thing, you know? It should be consensual. So, how about Buddhist monks and nuns? They can't have sex at all. That's one of the, that's one of the job descriptions we have to abide by when we become ordained. And why would that be the case if sex is good? The problem with sex for a Buddhist monk or nun is the desire for sex because the desire will never be satisfied. You can have sex like a thousand times. Still not enough. Somebody gives you Viagra for your birthday. Give me a break. Now, is that the most important part, this desire? It is the most important part. And, and one of the reasons it's there is because the ultimate goal of Buddhism is to be free. And you will never be free in an intimate relationship. You'll be in prison. But you'll be happy and you'll be fulfilled, and you'll be in love, and it'll be wonderful, and you'll have children, and mortgage payments, and car payments, and college tuition, and it'll all be worth it, and then you die. There you go. That's how most people live. And so for some reason, the Buddhist monks and nuns said, well, this lifetime, I'm not going to do it that way. That I probably have done it that way for lifetime after lifetime, in this lifetime, I'm going to be free from that. I'm going to have a simple life. I'm going to live in an economy of generosity, which means I'm not going to work. I'm going to let people give me money. Wow. You're going to let people give you money. Do you think people give you money just because they want to give you money? Probably not. But if you have a lifestyle that can be an example of, of uh, good mental health, and if you follow and abide by the rules and regulations, 227 in the early Buddhist tradition, the vows, it, people are sometimes willing to support you. And you don't have to work. And you have so much more time to think and practice and be of service in community. So when I moved in here, 1993, I moved in to take ordination. In 1994, I took novice monk ordination. And at that time, the center said to me, we would like you to be one of our monks. See, it's very American. And we'll give you a room to live in, and we'll give you health insurance, and we'll give you a little stipend each month so you can buy socks and underwear. And I said, okay, I'm going to grant. Now, I've been living in the same room for 20 years. Next week, I'm going to clean it. <laughs> so, little, little humor. <laughs> Okay, so that's working really good. So that allowed me to, to live, to exist, you know. 
Then I started to do other things. I started to do volunteer work. I went to California State Prison for Men to volunteer there. I went to Juvenile Hall, volunteer there. UCLA, volunteered there. Garden Grove Police Department, volunteered there. Cedar sinai Hospital, right now I'm volunteering there. Once a month I go to Leisure World with the old people. 7,500 old people. It's amazing. Have you ever seen that many old people in one place? They're having so much fun. They have three-wheeled bicycles. They have rainbow flags. They're dressing like they're 20. They're having a great time. And then I go there, and I thought, this is really weird. I don't know if I want to speak to a bunch of old people. And then I looked at them, and they all look like me. And I I said, okay, this is cool, you know. So in doing that kind of volunteer work, in, in creating a website, in creating a newsletter, in having a PayPal donation button, sometimes people give you money. They just give you money. The other day, I got money from Pennsylvania on my website. Dollar fifty. Now you might say, "Well, a dollar fifty, but this person took the time and was thoughtful enough to give me a dollar fifty all across the United States." I mean, you know, just that just blows my mind. Sometimes they give you more, sometimes they give you less. When I go to churches and I give talks, sometimes they give you a stipend, you know. And and so so what happens is you always seem to have enough, uh, but you never get everything you want. So, is having enough good enough? It can be if you've chosen simplicity as a lifestyle. Hmm. So that's how Buddhist monks live, at least in America. So now we're going to talk about right livelihood, which is comes after, um, which is part of right action. Now, right livelihood means how can I find a way to make a living and decrease suffering? and not increase suffering. So I, I was giving a talk at USC, and there was a business major, and, and he said, is it okay for a Buddhist to make a lot of money? And, and this is really a good question. I said, absolutely. That means you have so much more money to give away. Nothing wrong with making money. The problem with making money is when you think you own it. And then the rest of your life, you're protecting it. And then you die, and your whole family fights over it for the rest of their lives. You know? So sometimes it's better just to spend it all before you die and let them work it out. You know? Have a good time. So there's nothing wrong with money. There's something wrong with being attached to money. And there are so many ways to make a living that would decrease suffering. Doctors, you know, garbage men, lawyers maybe, politicians never. I don't know. (laughs) You know? It just depends how you look at the world. And so... As a Buddhist, this first part is looking at what we say, looking at what we do, and looking at how it either increases or decreases our suffering. It gives us a reference point. The second part of the Eightfold Path for a Buddhist would be the meditation category. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So right effort works like this. It's all becoming aware of how you're thinking. Right effort would be like to... Abandon unskillful thoughts once they have arisen to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising in the first place. To hold on to skillful thoughts that are already there and to develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. So we have this odd way of looking at our mind and key to all of this is skillful and unskillful thinking. 
So now we have to figure out what is skillful and what's unskillful. Unskillful thinking would be lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Skillful thinking, generosity, love, compassion, wisdom. Okay, now let me give you a practical example. Uh, last week I was in Food for Less buying cat food, and I happened to be on the bakery aisle. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but Hostess Cupcakes are now being reproduced again because they closed down bankruptcy, and now they're back in business. And they have this 12-pack individually wrapped. And they have so many preservatives in there, you can keep them on your shelf for years. And it's less than $5. And I said, I'm going to buy one. I'm going to get this whole box. And I, so I went to the you know, counter with you know, Hostess Cupcakes and cat food. You know, a typical old guy in the supermarket. You know. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, you know, the, the intention behind getting that box of 12 was greed. Because I had intended on eating them all myself. And if I had had a little generosity in there, I could have given six away and still been satisfied. So I bought the 12 and ate them all. But, that, <laughs> but that's just me. <laughs> but see how the mind works in there? Your mind will rationalize, it'll, it'll understand why you're buying 12, and it'll give you a reason why it's good. And, and so the meditator goes, no, 12's not good. And so we sort of watch our mind and how it works all day long. And now we go into cultivation of mind. And we have 44 different kinds of meditation that we can do as a Buddhist. And 40 kinds bring us peace and tranquility. And four kinds brings us insight, which allows us to develop the skills necessary to liberate ourselves from suffering and be free from that the rest of our life. Now, uh, let me just go quickly into the three aspects of insight meditation that liberate you, because these are really important. First one is anicca. Anicca means impermanence. And that's one of the things you start to become aware of when you meditate in an insightful way. You start to realize that everything in mind and body is impermanent. And then you look out into the world, and you look at the world as being impermanent also. That nothing exists any longer than a moment. And now you have to figure out how long a moment is, and a moment is as long as you want it to be. Because it doesn't exist in any time realm. It's just a way of measurement. Measuring nothing. There was um, a show on about space and time. Cosmos, Cosmos. And I was watching an episode of Cosmos, the new one, not the old one. And it was just fascinating because they talked about the Big Bang Theory. And whether you think that is true or not is beside the point. It's a fantastic theory and it was animated really well. So I'm sitting there watching the animation of the Big Bang and I thought to myself, this is so trippy because this is exactly why everything exists because of the Big Bang. And not because it started, but because it continues to change everything all the time in its expansion. They say the universe is continually expanding and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I thought to myself, if we had no change, if we had no impermanence, would, could anything at all exist? And the answer I came to was no. 
nothing could exist without impermanence. That impermanence is the basis for everything existing in this universe. I thought, wow, the Buddha was right on, you know, when he came up with this. And for him, this was not a theory. You know, for me, it's a theory. I watched Cosmos and saw the animation. But for him, he understood this to be truth because he had a direct experience of it. So when you hear the teachings of the Buddha, it is not a theory. It is what he experienced. Now, somebody will say to you, well, does that make it real? Because he experienced it. Absolutely not. It makes it real when you experience it. You're the one. He's just telling you what happened to him. Can he make it happen to you? He can't. He only tells us what he did to make that experience happen. And it's up to us to test it, to see if it's true to us in our practice. And if it's not true to us in our practice, we don't need to be a Buddhist. Because we don't see the world in the way he did. Second aspect, suffering. He said, because of all this impermanence in the world, everything is ultimately unsatisfactory because all the good stuff that we have in our life will change. Some of it changes really quickly. Some of it changes in a slow, methodical way. But it always is going to go away. All the good stuff always goes away. And then we have the bad stuff. And the bad stuff never goes away fast enough. So in looking at the good stuff and the bad stuff and looking at life and listening to the Buddha, he said... That's the unsatisfactoriness of life. And it started long, long ago for each and every one of us when we became separate from the world. Now, if you've ever read anything about the human evolution, and I'm not talking about over a span of centuries or eons, I'm talking about in one lifetime. The human evolution in one lifetime. So we all started out pretty much the same, just a little blob, you know? And we couldn't do anything at all. And people think children are so cute. And I look at children and I think kittens are much cuter. But that's just me. So around two, three months, there's a certain beginning of self-awareness. And the self-awareness happens when there's somebody else in the room. All of a sudden, somebody else is with us. Who is it? It's mom. You know? And then we find we have a hand that's connected to us in a sort of odd way. But it's ours once we learn how to use it. And we start evolving, and we get this separateness and this selfishness, and we start to feel uncomfortable because we are not connected any longer to the world around us. We're no longer connected. We are now going to be forever separate. And then you go to school. And I hated school because I never knew why I should be there. And then ultimately I found out. But it was, I had to learn all this stuff, and I had to learn these words, and I had to learn how to read, and I had to learn all this labeling. And the reason I needed to do that was because I needed to manipulate the world around me in order to exist. And you can't use it if you can't name it. But every time you name something, you are separate from it. So if you have a really good vocabulary of like 10,000 words, you're going to be separate from the universe in 10,000 different ways. And it makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Because you don't want to be separate. You want to be embraced by this wonderful universe of ours. Okay, so we keep going into this thing of suffering, and we keep seeing this impermanence, and then we come up with the most radical concept of all. (coughs) The Buddha said, we do not exist in the way we think we do. 
Now he started off with soul. And he said, you know, you may not have soul. And that really freaks out a lot of people. But then you have to figure out, well, what is a soul? And where does it live? And how big is it? And does it weigh anything? And does it have a color or a smell? What is the soul? Sometimes people think it's behind the pituitary gland. Could be. I don't know. But the Buddha saw two philosophical problems with having a soul. One was eternalism. If you had a soul that stayed the same and simply went from one vessel to the other, reincarnation, Hinduism, then you might consider one of those lifetimes not being worthy of being skillful or good and just go and kill and plunder and have a wonderful time, realizing you'd have many more lifetimes to make up for that one lifetime of indiscretion. On the other side of the coin, which is nihilism, he said, if you don't believe you have a soul, and you don't believe you're going anywhere, then when you die, you're going to feed the trees, and what does it matter what you do, because there's no consequence. So he saw an issue between having a soul and not having a soul, and he came up with the middle path. You may have a soul, but it's not who you really are. Wow. So then the question goes, well, who are you really? And Buddhists spend so much time on this question. Who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? And when you get to the nitty-gritty of being a self, a personality, a person, what the Buddha said you find over and over again is simply a process that's there because of human birth, a mind, and a body. You have this process going. You do not exist like you do any longer than a moment. So every moment of every day, we are changing because we too are impermanent and we are no longer the same person. So the person that walked through that door a half hour, hour ago is not going to be the same person that leaves because they've been petting a cat, they've been listening to me talk, they heard a ukulele song. They have now expanded their awareness and consciousness. They are no longer that same person. And can you imagine day after day, week after week, month after month, just absorbing all this stuff and changing and evolving? And what the Buddha said about that is we never end. We are always in a constant state of becoming something else. You never get to the point where you have become that thing because as soon as you think you're there, the process continues and takes you past it. So always in a constant state of becoming something else, we never become anything. So you can see, if you're doing drugs and doing meditation and thinking like this, you may not have a good job. Because you're going to say, who's going to go to work? So the idea is to have a relative reality and an ultimate reality. To realize all this stuff at an ultimate level, but it's hard to, it's hard to use it in our everyday life. Because we are required to be somebody. I have a driver's license. If I'm on the 405 and I'm going too fast and they pull me over, I have to be that guy in the driver's license. If I say to the police officer, you know, it's really not me. I'm in a constant state of becoming something else. <laughs> I'd probably get taken in for observation. <laughs> so we need to be somebody. And you don't want to go home and tell your parents you're not who they think they are. You know, your mom is not really me anymore. I'm now somebody else. Where? Well, who are you? 
I don't know who I am anymore, Mom. She's going to freak out. So we have to be somebody. And Ram Das, one of my favorite teachers, says, the first part of our life, we are in somebody training. We're training to be somebody. We go to school. We're training to have a career. We're getting relationships. We're looking at ourselves in a certain way. And then he said, if we're smart and wise, the second half of our life, we go into nobody training. Because being nobody is so much easier than being somebody. Who would be the best president ever? Nobody. Little play in words. Okay. <laughs> so going into nobody training allows you to die. Going into somebody training allows you to live. So at some point, there needs to be this little transition from living into living to die. Is it depressing to live to die? Absolutely not. As soon as you figure out how to die, you can live that much better. Remember that woman, 29 years old, died in Oregon, had the brain cancer? And everybody was just freaking out. She's going to take her own life. Da-da-da-da-da-da. When she finally decided to take her life, she really decided to live 100% engaged in everything she did. She traveled. She had friends, relatives. She would discuss important things. You know, if you're going to die, you really realize every moment's a special and important and valuable moment. And then she took her life. And you say to yourself, well, you know, as a Christian, taking life is not so good. As a Buddhist, taking life is never good. Is, it, is there any time when it's appropriate to take your own life? or to take somebody else's life, or something's life. And you'd have to come to the conclusion that probably, yes, there is a time that it might be necessary. When I was a police chaplain, a volunteer police chaplain in Garden Grove, one of the officers asked me, you know, he said, I am paid to protect and serve, and I am given permission to use lethal force. And as a Buddhist, what would you say to that? And I told him, never kill out of anger or hatred, only in, only in service and duty to the community, because that will reduce the karmic consequences of killing. For a Buddhist, there's always a karmic consequence for taking a life. Even if you have the best reason in the world, you've got a house, you've got a family, somebody breaks in, you're going to kill your wife, you kill the person. It was the appropriate thing to do. But there will be a karmic consequence because you took a life. It'll be less, perhaps. You don't know. So this idea of choice becomes a really big issue in Buddhism. And it, for the most part, we've lost our choice. So we're trying to get it back. Have you ever had an original thought? You know, I haven't. All the thoughts I've ever had are based on somebody else's thoughts that somehow got into my head. What I really enjoy about reading is I'm now thinking like the, like the author. So my thoughts are no longer important. It's the author's thoughts that are important. I, and it's so cool. But when you get to this place of freedom, of choice, you, you start to see that every choice we've ever made is based on either what we've learned, what we've done, or perhaps some suggestion from somebody else. Can we get to this place where we make our choice based on the present moment experience of our life without any past or future considerations? Could we do that? So this idea of being selfless and getting past the self, not killing the self, they, they have a word for, for killing the self. It's called Alzheimer's. You can tell it's not very functional. 
You don't want to kill yourself. You want to appreciate the self. The self is a is a mechanism, a process that allows you to exist. The only problem with self is it's a terrible master. It's a great tool, but it's not a good master. So the idea of getting past that to make certain choices comes with selflessness, and that comes from the practice of meditation, and that comes from being involved in the present moment experience of your life. Bang. So once you get there, the last couple aspects of the Eightfold Path are right view, right intention. Right view of the Four Noble Truths, relative and ultimate levels, and right view of karma. Now karma is like one of the most important things in Buddhism. And it's misunderstood completely because of the 60s, because there was a bumper sticker that said, what goes around comes around. But that's not karma. That's a bumper sticker. So karma is everything you think, say, and do. Every time you think something, say something, or do something, you're taking energy and you're transforming it and giving it a moral value. So you have skillful speech, you have unskillful speech. You see what I'm saying? The results of that is called vipaka. Cause, karma, consequence of vipaka. Cause and consequence. Why is karma so important in Buddhism? Because we don't have God to define for us what is right and what is wrong. We do not have a divine lawgiver. We have rather karma, which is sort of like gravity. It's a process of the universe. And you could curse gravity the next time you fall and say to yourself, if there wasn't any gravity, I wouldn't have fallen. And you could do the same thing with karma. But karma is, is the moral aspect of, of our life. And, and, and it is also the thing that ends in nirvana. When you achieve nirvana, you end your karma. And why is that so important? Because it's the karmic energy that goes from one lifetime to the next, according to Buddhism. It's not the soul, it's the karmic energy. If you can end your karma, you're going to end all future rebirths, because there's nothing else to be reborn. So Buddhism says that in order for a human to be born, there needs to be gandaba, karmic energy, often looked at as a verb rather than a noun, a sperm and an egg. And those three things come together and human life begins. And now the next question is, well, if that's when human life begins, how do Buddhists feel about abortion? And abortion would be, it's always wrong to kill, but sometimes it's necessary and you're going to have consequences. No matter how good or how bad your reasoning is, there's always going to be a consequence. So there's an accountability aspect in Buddhism that sometimes isn't there in Christianity because of forgiveness and grace. We lack both of those concepts. We are stuck. But can we change the results before they happen? Can we change the way we're going to experience the results before they happen? And the answer is absolutely. Think about it this way. Think about having a forest pond and you have this rock and you throw the rock in the pond and these waves come. Then you have a forest pond and you have a little pebble and you throw that in and then these wavelets come. So we have this karma pond and we do all this karma and then in order to make wavelets out of the waves, we go out and do some good stuff. We be proactive. We give money away. We help people. We feed cats. Whatever we do, whatever merit we gain, reduces the consequences we're going to feel from the karma we produced in the past. So we are in charge. 
If you're having a bad day, a Buddhist would say, do something about it. Do something good and skillful, and that day will change. And tomorrow will be better as well. So karma plays such a big role in Buddhism, and that's why right view, or the Four Noble Truths and understanding karma, and then right intention. The Buddha said our intention leads our speech and action into the world in the same way an ox pulls a cart. And if our intention is one based in generosity, love, kindness, our speech and action will manifest in a skillful way, we'll suffer less, and the people around us will suffer less. Bang. So see, this is like a really complicated, a lot of work to do kind of religion, philosophy, lifestyle, therapy. But it gives you something to do. One of my favorite stories is this guy is going to Yosemite. And he's deathly afraid of bears, you know, and and he finds the ranger and he says, you know, I've heard there's some bears up here and I'm not sure what to do if I see one. And the ranger says, you run like hell. And the guy says, but they can run 40, 50 miles an hour. What's the point of running? And the ranger says, it gives you something to do before the bear kills you. (laughs) So Buddhism gives us something to do before life kills us, you know. (laughs) It's just like. We have a lot to do. Any questions? Yes, the question. Um, So, that statue is Buddha. That's the Buddha. Okay, so what's the difference between that statue and then the bald chubby guy? Oh, the guy in front. (laughs) Okay, the guy in front is a Chinese hotai. H-O-T-A-I. It's a good luck symbol. And you find it in... um, Chinese restaurants a lot. And what it is, it's a way of uh, changing your luck without working on your karma. So you rub its belly, you rub its head, and it gives you good luck. Um, the Buddha, on the other hand, is, uh, was a historical character, and, and he can't give you good luck. He gives you something to do to make your luck change, which is the Dharma and his teachings. What's interesting for me is I was just giving a talk at a Catholic high school uh, last week, and every classroom has the cross with the dead guy on it. And I just go, man, it's just really depressing. And then you walk into, you know, the Buddhist place, and you got the guy sitting, he's half smile, and he's only smiling if you sit below him. If If you stand above him, the smile goes away. So he's up high, and, and he's smiling, and he's peaceful. And, and you look at his earlobes. Look how long his earlobes are. They're long because he was a prince and wore heavy jewelry. So his earrings were very heavy and stretched his earlobes. So there's, there's some s- symbols on this um, that allows us to look at him as a reflection of our potential. So it can be a mirror to us. You know. Thanks for the question. Yeah, and then... Yeah. Two. Uh, Two. I just want to know, like, who are the other, like... Because the other people up there? Yeah, and also, uh, like, what is it with the, like, oranges and incense? Because I go to cemeteries. And, and you see it all the time. Yeah, so I just want to be curious. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, it's good. Okay, the, the woman over there, that is uh, Kuan Yin Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva of compassion. The Buddhist saint r- symbolizes compassion. Uh, this little guy over here, that's Ananda, the Buddha's right-hand monk and personal attendant. Uh, the food 
is on there because we feed the ancestors all the time. And there's a whole ancestor reality that I, I, I never had as a Lutheran. You know, uh, I was Lutheran before I was nothing, and then I went from nothing to being a Buddhist. And I never thought about ancestors as a Lutheran. I thought about my immediate family, you know, and I thought a lot about me. <laughs> and then I got into Buddhism, and, and what they were saying is that ancestors are so important because every ancestor you've ever had is one of the reasons you're here. Without them, you wouldn't be here. So, do you know who the first family was in Christianity? Adam and Eve. So, you guys had a first family. We don't even have first family because it's always been and always will be. So, you know, families have always been and always will be. And that's why we have fruit. Because sometimes they're not reborn and they're just hanging around earth and they get hungry. Now, I've never seen any of the fruit disappear. So, I don't know, but it's there just in case. Over there, we have a memorial altar, and those are all dead people. And we have some cats and dogs, too. And you know what the cool thing is about people getting their picture taken is they're always smiling. So, all the people on the memorial altar are all smiling. And you know what comes to my mind when I'm standing in front of that, looking at all those smiling faces? They're thinking, you're next. Yes. Real quickly, um, I ex—I think my grandmother told me this. It was like, um, oh, they're at a wedding, and a young person, and then the elderly goes to child and says, "Oh, you're next." And then at a funeral, the young the young person goes to the elderly and says, "Oh, you're next." There you go. I just thought it was really funny. It is funny <laughs> and true. And your question is? I she had one more. Eh? Oh, that was it. No, she had two. She had the food um, and then she had the people. My question was a personal question. Sure. Um, how do you feel of not feel, um, getting, being forgiven or having grace? Yeah. Just having to live through that. Responsibility. Yeah, that responsibility of like you really got to watch what you do mm-hmm. so you don't, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, no, that's exactly it. It's, it's part of growing up. You know, it's like having your parents will forgive the children, Mm. you know. But then you leave your family, and it's hard to find forgiveness in the world. Your boss sometimes won't forgive you. Your boyfriend won't forgive you. Nobody forgives you. Mm. And their parents were so nice to forgive you because they realized how how tough it was. So it's just a way of evolving as a person and becoming mature. And in realizing there's a consequence for everything you think, say, and do. And it does sometimes give you a second thought. Mm-hmm. Well, should I do this? Can I afford the consequence? Mm-hmm. You know? Like if you're driving drunk, DUI, 10000 bucks, maybe a little jail time. You know, man, that's a big consequence. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not going to forgive you unless you get a good lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so it's like life. It's just sort of like life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you get used to it after a while. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Yeah. What's the difference or the distinction with uh, the historical Buddha and like this Buddha? In, like, is this, are they the exact does, same thing? Does this represent the historical Buddha? Mm-hmm. Kind of, and if it doesn't, like what, then what is? 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good question. And it, it's, no, the historical Buddha did not look like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this came from Taiwan. A temple in Taiwan sent this over for us. It was really nice of them. But if you look at some of the characteristics, he looks a little Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you were to go to Burma or Sri Lanka, they look a little Burmese or Sri Lankan. And some people have tried to make American Buddhas. But how does an American look? You know, how does an American look? We don't, yeah, we don't know. The American looks like everybody, because everybody can be an American. So it's fascinating. So uh, when the Buddha died, he didn't want anybody f- f- to decide his form. So he was often represented as an empty cushion or footprint or something like that. His absence was represented, not his presence. And then about 400 years after the Buddha died, there was this king who wanted to be known as a famous king. And he sent some artisans to Greece to make the first Buddha statue. And if you look at the first Buddha statue, he had a mustache. Because (laughs) men with mustaches were more virile than those who didn't have one. And so the Buddha image has evolved over the centuries and centuries and and now become fiberglass. So So we don't think of it as this being the Buddha, we think of this representing the characteristics of the Buddha. Okay, so it's just a means of remembering what the historical person taught. That's the most important part. Okay. It's nice to know that he was here, but he died. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't resurrected. Yeah. So now, when I see pictures of Christ, I say to myself, I wonder if that's how Christ looked. The blonde hair, the blue eyes, you know, I'm thinking... <laughs> He was the only one in Israel that had that. Or, you know. so, so people wanted Christ to look like them. And people wanted Buddha to look like them. You know, it's just human. Yes, and then I could. Could you tell us a little bit about like your conversion process? Yeah. Raised as a Lutheran? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, conversion process. My conversion process was I was born a Lutheran. Uh, and because my parents were Lutheran, and you're, you're probably what you are because your parents are, uh, some of you. <laughs> okay, that's good. It's nice to have the first choice, you know, to choose what you want to be. So I was a Lutheran, and I realized that none of that stuff made any sense to me. You know, everybody else, you know, could read the Bible, King James Version, and it just was like, what the heck are they talking about? And all these stories and things, and I couldn't ever figure out why they were telling the stories, what was the moral to the story. It was always hidden from me. And I just decided that it wasn't going to work for me. So I was lucky enough to go to high school in the 60s, and in the 60s it was cool to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So that's what I did. So I became nothing, and then I realized it's really hard to be nothing because you always have to defend being nothing. So I decided to become a little something and agnostic. There was something, but I can't really define it. I really don't know what it is. And that allowed people just to go, oh, he's agnostic and didn't have to defend anything. But then at the age of 29, something dramatic happened in my life. And I'm not sure why, but I realized I was going to die. I woke up in the morning on that day and realized I was going to die. That for some reason, my mortality became obvious. Now, I had been smoking cigarettes for 14 years, and on that day I stopped smoking cigarettes. Not thinking it would help me live longer, but help me live better with the few years that I have left. Because, again, coming from a, 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 a 
a culture of everybody over 30 can't be trusted and they die quickly. I'm 29, I'm going to be 30, how long do I have after I turn 30? You know, so I joined a gym and I started working out for the first time and, and then I became aware of my mind. I didn't ever think about my mind, it was just who I was. And then I thought, mind-body duality, how cool is that? And then I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to have to die, I should die with a religion because people with religions die better than people who don't have one. So I bought the book by Houston Smith and read the chapter on Buddhism and said, I'm going to be a Buddhist. So there was no divine inspiration. It was just chapter four. That, you know, <laughs> that, and so you read each chapter? I read the whole book, each chapter, and I chose Buddhism because it made the most sense to a secular kind of guy like me. You know? And then, and then I came here, 1979, and started to meditate. And it was the worst experience I ever had. Because it just, I sat quietly and just literally suffered and became aware of all the suffering that I'd never been aware of before. And I'm, I'm happy to say that I had a really good life before I was a Buddhist. And I've suffered ever since. Because I didn't realize I was suffering. I was so deluded and so into my own little world. Now... I suffer far less because there are certain st strategies and techniques that Buddhism gives you to suffer less. And it's a more realistic way, I think, of approaching the world and approaching our lifespan. So Buddhism was a religion that made sense to me because it was a secular humanistic perspective. Now, did I miss not having God? Because in Buddhism, God is optional. But, you know, to be honest with you, I've never had any experience at all with God. I don't know. I've been a member, I, I, true story, I was in Garden Grove, we were having an interreligious meeting. Once a month they have that, and the various members, and there was this evangelical minister sitting at the table, and all of a sudden, his eyes get big. And he starts to look up, look into the distance. And I, I said, I bet he hears something. I wonder if God's speaking to him. And then I listened carefully, and the speaker in the ceiling was still on, and people were talking, but it was turned on really low. So I listened to the speaker, and I heard people talking. He listened to the speaker. He heard God. So I'm one of the guys that always heard people talking. <laughs> and it never was, you know, fantastical. It never was, you know, amazing. It was just, this is life. So I, I never missed God. It's not that I deny that God exists. I don't know, which I think is probably the wisest thing I could ever say about God, is I don't know. And so Buddhism allows me to, to look at God that way and say it that way. Is that helpful? Yeah. Thanks. Question? Oh, yeah, I kind of have two. Um, what is the... Because she asked if the guy out there isn't the Buddha. That's How, the Hotai, yeah. That gets obviously called, I think, Buddha before. How did that become a part of Buddhism? Well, you know, uh, Buddhism went to China from India, mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the figures from China. So, so oftentimes what you'll find when Buddhism goes to a new country or culture, a lot of the stuff is absorbed into it mm -hmm. because it makes the people feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. So I would imagine one day we'll have Buddhist Christmas, too. And we'll have him in the, with the seven, not the reindeer, but maybe oxen. And every, 
giving <laughs> gifts to all the children. You know, it's just people want to feel comfortable. And even with new concepts that are just mind-blowing and paradigm-breaking, they still like to add the, the good stuff in there that they feel comfortable with. It's like comfort food for them. And then, does anyone who reaches like the state of nirvana become a Buddha? Do they have become like awakened? Or is that just the title given to the, the mm. That is the best question today. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because in early Buddhism, this is the, what I talked about today, which is the teachings of the Buddha from India. You can only have one Buddha at a time on earth. So this is the 28th Buddha. There were 27 before him. Yeah. How do we know that? It's on page four. But how do we know that? See, yeah, see, what is, what is truth? What is knowledge? How do we know anything? So Buddhism is an empirical perspective. Buddhism is, is, means that it's only true if you can experience it. I haven't experienced the other 27 Buddhas, but I see them at different temples. So when people say, is it real, is it true, I say it's what Buddhism teaches. And it's up to you to decide. So 28th Buddha, you decide. But you can only have one at a time, and if you achieve nirvana, then you can't be a Buddha because we already have our Buddha, so you become an arahant. An arahant is someone who achieves the exact same nirvana as the Buddha, but they had a teacher, and they were taught the path, and they realized it. Now, we have silent Buddhas, called the Pacheka Buddha. That is someone who achieves nirvana, but doesn't know how they did it, and can't talk about it. So all you guys could be a Pacheka Buddha, one time or another. I don't know how well that would go over in your church. Um, They have uh, four levels of nirvana. They have the stream enterer, which means you'll uh, you'll achieve nirvana in seven lifetimes. You have the once returner, one more time back, non-returner. When you die, you'll achieve nirvana. And the arhant, someone who achieves nirvana while they're alive and, and then goes into nirvana after death. But the Mahayana, the reform movement, the Protestants of Buddhism said, no. We're going to do what the Buddha did, not what the Buddha said. And what they do now is they say, we're going to become Buddhas. But the problem is in the numbers. If you can only have one Buddha at a time on earth, and they want to become Buddhas, where are they going to be Buddhas? And they have something called dust motes. That every dust moat, every piece of dust that's floating, when you can sometimes see it in the sunlight, is a world system. And you could be a Buddha on a dust moat. Or you could be a Buddha on a different planet in a different solar system. So they don't want to be Arhants, they want to be Buddhas. And that's a major difference between early Buddhism and later Buddhism. Early Buddhism, I think, was more of a therapy. It was about how to end suffering. Later Buddhism was much more of a religion. They had Buddhist saints, they had the idea of service and generosity, they had all sorts of concepts that are found in most religions around the world. So, good question, yeah. If there can only be one Buddha at a time, but he's dead, why can't there be one right now? Because his teachings are still being practiced, and they still work. So once the last person who knows the teachings of this Buddha dies, then the next Buddha will come to earth, and his name is Maitreya Buddha, and he's waiting in heaven right now for the last person to die who's practicing Buddhism. 
then he'll start the wheel of Dharma turning again. He'll be the 29th Buddha. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me get the, in back there. Yes. Yes, it doesn't. We have no beginning and we have no end. It's a big circle. So we don't have to argue about first cause. I personally like the flying spaghetti monster as first cause, but that's just me. Have you heard of the flying spaghetti monster? You have to Google that. It's, it's a good one. The, the flying spaghetti monster is a religion unto himself, and people that follow his teachings are pirates, and they wear an eye patch. And he's the reason the world started. So that could be just as good as any other concept. In Buddhism, because there's no first cause, we don't even have to go there. And even if you knew what the first cause was, would it change your level of suffering? Or just give you something to talk about at the party? You know, it's, Buddhism is so practical sometimes, and, and so harsh sometimes. You know, it doesn't give you a chance to sort of be fantastical. You know, it says, you know, keep your feet on the ground, be aware of everything you think, say, and do. You're in charge, it's your choice, blah, 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 blah. Which is good sometimes. Yes, and then yes. Okay. You mentioned heaven. Heaven. So when you end your karma and you're done being reborn, do you go to heaven? Is that? No, no, you go to nirvana. What is heaven? What is heaven? Thank you. Okay. We have 30 heavens and 30 hells. Uh, they, were, they came from the Hindu tradition, actually. And, and so let me give you a brief description of the six realms of existence, which is the Reader's Digest version of all the heavens and hells. Uh, the first heaven is perfect. It's just the way you want it to be. The only problem with our best heaven is it's not forever. Impermanence. Even in heaven. So now you finally made it to the best heaven there's ever going to be, and you're there 100,000 lifetimes, and one day they come and tell you you have to leave because your karma wore out, and you can't stay there any longer. Bummer. The second heaven, I like to call the Donald Trump heaven. It has a little desire connected to it, and if you had one more building or one more wife, it would be perfect, but you'd never get them. The third realm of existence would be the human realm. This is like the best place for a human, because this is where we find the Dharma, <clears throat> and this is where we have the potential of achieving nirvana. In heaven, things are too good. You don't want to change anything. In hell, things are so bad, you can't change anything. Now we have the first hell realm. The first hell realm is the animal realm. So little Rain the cat is in hell right now. <laughs> and I know that she doesn't look like a hell being, but the reason we consider her to be a hell being is because she's very limited in the way she can experience the world. She eats... She sleeps, she has sex, and she's totally confused. Thankfully, she's fixed as well. So that's the animal realm. That's a hell realm. And when I was a teenager, I was pretty much in the animal realm most of the time. I'm glad I finally got out and made it to a human. <laughs> now we have the second hell realm, which is called the hungry ghost realm. And these are giant creatures, 10 feet tall. They have a little pinhole for a mouth. And no matter how hard they try to put the food through the mouth, they're always hungry, all the time. And then finally, the worst hell of all, you look just like you do when you die, and then you walk into the forest, and all the leaves turn into razor blades and fall off the tree and cut you into a million pieces, and you die, 
and immediately get resurrected so you be killed over and over and over again and finally the suffering from all the deaths that occur purifies the karma that puts you there and you get to be reborn out so now people say but why do we have more and more people on earth does that mean that there are more and more people coming from other places and coming on earth and I, I think it works like this you have a static number of people this is how many people we have now we have some people who are in heaven and we have some people who are in hell. And so now we have a lot of hell beings reborn on earth, so we have more beings on earth than we did before. Or sometimes we have more heaven beings being born on earth and we have less we have more beings. So we keep changing between all these realms of existence until finally we all achieve nirvana. And then all the realms empty. But how long will that take? Forever. Make sense? Don't we have an interesting afterlife? It's so interesting. I can't follow. So, two questions. Yes. Um, so you would say that like, each person as an individual is currently in their own kind of heaven or hell. Or not their own, but like in one of the... Okay. Currently in... I don't know. Okay. In a, well, the, the human realm of existence. So we all made it to the human realm. We would say that. So this really isn't heaven. This really isn't hell. It's the human realm. What made it to the human realm? Well, there you go. What made it? Our karmic energy made it. And then it got a body and a mind. But, but now let me, let me say this. This doesn't go well in America. Because America doesn't believe in past life or future life. We've been Christians too long. Americans. You know, so you have, you're born, you go to heaven forever. You know, what's this past and future stuff? So a lot of people think it doesn't have anything to do with past or future at all. It has something to do with right now and a particular mind state sort of being reborn. So sometimes our mind seems to go into the heaven realm. And we're happy and joyful and everything looks wonderful. And sometimes our mind goes to the hell realm. So we keep getting reborn day by day, moment by moment and each day into all these different realms of consciousness. That's another way of looking at it. It doesn't have to be physical. It can be conscious as well. So it's not like physical it, it can be physical, and there are places, up and down, heaven's up, hell's down, but it can simply be psychological. And if you're having a bad day, you could say to yourself, gosh, I was reborn in the hell realm today. What am I going to do to get out of it? You know? Interesting. So it gives you a chance to look at your life in a little different way, and maybe have a different choice. Second question. Twenty eighth Buddha. How do you know, like, we know the names of all the twenty seven before him. They're in the sutras. In the sutras. Who wrote yeah. The sutras? Who wrote the sutras? This is really good because you guys are in school and you're reading books all the time. And if the books aren't true, you're not learning anything that's useful. Mm-hmm. So, so the the sutras there's there's three pitakas, there's three baskets. There's the basket of the rules and regulations that the monks and nuns follow. It's called the um, the vinaya. And, and in early Buddhism, 227 vows. Those are found in the basket or the books of the rules and regulations. The second category are the, the books of the teachings of the Buddha, his sutras, his talks. And those are in Nikayas. They have the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length talks, Dika Nikaya, lengthy talks, Anguttara Nikaya, numerical talks. They're all separated and, and, and they're interesting, sort of. 
And then the third basket are, is the Abhidharma. This is the psychology of Buddhism. These are the mind states and, and seven books on that. Very intricate. And, and what it shows me is that at some point, these monks who don't work, don't have children, don't have wives, just decided to understand how their consciousness worked. And they just wrote all this stuff out. And it's just the most detailed and boring explanation from a Western perspective, for me, you know, it's not like Freud or Jung. It's just, you know, you have 51 good mind states, you have 51 bad mind states, and each one is listed, and there's commentary, da 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 Those are the books called the Pali Canon, P-A-L-I, Pali Canon. Pali is a canonical language of early Buddhism. It's a dead language like Latin, and everything was codified in that. Uh, it doesn't have its own script, which is interesting. So, so depending on what country translates it, they use their script. Uh, it is uh, detailed to the point of excessive, and and there are monks who have been able to memorize the entire canon, and can refer to it by memory. It's pretty amazing stuff, but it just goes to show you how much they don't have to do, you know, that they were able to do that. And it also shows you the potential that the humans used to have. So all this stuff was memorized until it was eventually written down. And what they would have is they'd have different monasteries who would take different sections of the Pali Canon and memorize it. So the monk's job was to memorize this particular section. All the monks in that monastery memorized this particular section. Then they would bring all the monasteries together and all the monks then would recite their section and you hear the whole thing. Pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. So, yes? Would you say that like, you think you'll reach nirvana in this lifetime? Or like, where are you on your like, path to nirvana? I haven't got the slightest idea. I think I'm really far away. Okay. <laughs> really far away. Okay. I'm going to need a few more lifetimes. Okay. So, uh, the, yes. Um, and then I'll get to you. So, uh, earlier in our class, this like, question came up about... Um, so in order for Siddhartha to become Buddha, he had to leave his wife and child. Yes. Uh, but he was a family man. Deadbeat so, dad. So, yeah. Yeah. so to our understanding, we're like, oh, that's so sad. But like in my mind, I'm like, well, that's so sad because he has to become Buddha and he has to leave to get it. But so question is, um, people that are already married, are they allowed to leave and then become a monk? Or do, can monks only be, be seeing people? Like, can you ever have been married? Can you have had children? And then, um, like, what, um, I don't know if you know, but like, what was, like, Siddhartha, did he, like, reunite with his family? Did he ever see them again? Did like, anger? Um, okay, I got it. Did his family kind of Okay, uh, number one, he did leave his family. He left him in the care of, of the king and queen, his parents. Uh, and he left his wife after she bore his first and only child, Rahula. Rahula means fetter or impediment. That's what he called his first child. Uh, he left them for the greater good of humankind. In the same way a lot of men and women today who have been, become members of the service will leave their families and go fight for their country. And some will come back and some won't. But they did it for the greater good of their country. He did it for the greater good of humankind. He did go back. He saw his wife again and he saw his child again. And the story goes, um, his wife knew he was going to be in a particular village and, and speaking, and, he, and she told little Rahula, go get your 
go get your inheritance. He used to be a prince, and now it's yours. So little Rahula found the Buddha and said, Dad, I want my inheritance. And Dad ordained him and made him a monk. (laughs) So now the wife not only lost her husband, but lost her only child, and she became ordained as well. Which, which you, you know, they had that, um, I keep forgetting the name of it, they had that movie out where Jesus got married to Mary Magdalene and had a child in this secret cult. I forgot what it's called. Yeah, it was... Yeah, the Da Vinci Code. It was called Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code, that's the one. What an interesting concept for me. And so I, I thought to myself, well, how did the Buddha sidestep that problem? He just ordained everybody, you know. Made him celibate. So, so now we have, um, can you be a monk if you've been married? Yes, you can. But you'd have to get permission, if you're still married, from your wife and children to be a monk. Um, can a woman be uh, a nun if she has children? After they become legal age and can live on their own, she can become a nun. Um, and, and so a monk can be reordained up to seven times. They can leave, come back, leave, come back seven times. A woman only once. Can only leave once. I think basically because they have children. And if a woman has a child, that's more important than being a nun. That's what I would say. So, yeah, so there, there are a lot of rules and regulations of what, of, of what allows you, you know. And then there's, um, there's questions that they ask you. Uh, you. You can't be in debt if, you're, if you want to be a monk. So that eliminates about most of Americans, you know. <laughs> Unfortunately, but it's true, isn't it? You know, you know, you know. So there are certain requirements necessary. Yeah. Thank you. Good question. Question. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out kind of what I'm seeking the answer for. Um, so basically, can can you? Um, get out of that state of disillusion, whether it's through, I guess, Buddhism practices, and not be a monk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so can a lay person achieve nirvana? Can a married person with a wife or a husband and a car payment, can they achieve nirvana? Absolutely. It's harder, though, Mm -hmm. because they have a lot more distractions Mm -hmm. than the monk does. But yes, of course. Mm. So you're not limited in that way. We're running out of time, so does anybody have one last burning question? We all have questions. Well, maybe what we should do is kind of officially end it. Well, I don't know. You probably don't have all day either. So I have all day. (laughs) (laughs) But but you probably don't have all day. So maybe just one or two more questions. And then I brought my harmonica today, so we can have a little bit of that, too. Um, what caused you to want to be a monk instead of just a follower of Buddhism? Yeah, that is really a good question, because I didn't want to be a monk. And, and I, I thought, you know, I'd have to give a lot of stuff up, especially girls. I didn't want to give up girls. <laughs> and, and, you know, I enjoyed having, like, money, you know, and... and 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 I had to, and I thought to myself, wow, I don't think I can ever give all this stuff up. And and then it's just I kept meditating and practicing and reading and talking to people, 
And, and, and it goes to show you what happens when you take your religion too seriously, is it changes you, you don't change it. So I got caught. It all made sense. And I've been ordained since 1994, so 20 years. And it's the best 20 years of my life. I am so happy that I, that I, that I took the chance and got ordained because it has given me so much more than I can ever tell you about life and feeling how I feel about myself and how I feel about girls. It's wonderful um, to have women in your life and, and not have to go to bed with them. Because you can have just wonderful, deep, intimate conversations. You can be so much more intimate in that way. And, and you can be friends for the rest of your life. You know, I think of all the lovers I had, I'll never talk to them again. But the <laughs> friends continue. So, yeah, so I'm happy that I'm, I'm happy that I got ordained. And I didn't plan on it. It just happened. Which is sort of cool. Yeah. Two little questions. Well, two quick questions. Orchids. Why are there always orchids? Um, is that like a, a symbol? A flower symbol, not difference. orchids. Yeah, but the person that buys the flowers for us buys orchids. <laughs> <laughs> They're all real. Even the ones in the very back are fake, but the rest of them are real. Ha. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't those perfect? Yeah, no, these are beautiful, beautiful flowers. And, why do, um, and then why do people, um, so sometimes I see people burn incense? Yes. And then like bow and like, yeah. I think burning incense is really important because people take off their shoes. But it also, <laughs> besides the practical aspect of it, it also, in the old days, uh, back in India, they used to build these big fires, and the smoke would go up to the heavens. Mm -hmm. And so they would do offerings. You know, sometimes they throw in live animals as offerings, and then it would go up to the heavens. And so, in, in a way, the, the, the smoke goes up, up to the heavens, but it's just a, a nice smell rather than anything living or dead. Yeah. So there's a lot of symbolism in burning incense. And we also have a, a, a chant that we do when we burn the incense to give it even more value. Thanks for the question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we don't have any gods that we're yeah, offering to. So, so for us, it's just it's pleasant, okay. and it, it is a sort of offering to whatever's up there, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and and it smells good. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sort of, yeah. So the the harmonica um, is something I started playing back in the eighties. So, this is my latest harmonica. Isn't that isn't that cute? Yeah, it's just a little harmonica. And and so I, I I I like to play the blues and you know I mean what else would a Buddhist play you know I mean it just, it just sort of makes sense doesn't it? so so here's um, so here's a little blues in the key of uh, key of G. Yeah. <laughs> 
she always thinks I'm being hurt when she hears the hymn. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. Well, two, two students that are going to be yeah. coming well, to.